taxes for good or evil. That is what my next guest is talking about. John Richardson is an expat lawyer and advocates for US citizens who have to pay taxes abroad. He co-founded the group SAYAT to stop extraterritorial American taxation and has lobbied the Senate and is one of the leading voices on expat law. Some people want to try and help deprive children or people with mental health issues, but John is on a mission to stop US citizens from being taxed abroad, which also has a catastrophic impact on their lives. Let's find out what set him on his journey. John, welcome to Tea Time with me, Annie Monjack. How are you? Well, I'm very well. Happy to be here. Looking forward to a fun conversation. Good for you. So, I mean, you've probably had quite a busy week in the world of citizenship taxation, have you? No, not at all. Uh, more of a busy week in terms of, you know, I'm actually starting to get calls of people who want to get out of Canada. I've had two calls from people who get this want to renounce Canadian citizenship. Uh, last night, somebody left me a message asking if they thought there was any legal basis for going to another country and applying it for refugee status based on what's going on in Canada. So, you know, this is all new and interesting. I mean, for years, people have threatened to leave Canada because of the oppressive taxation. Uh, but now they're they're wanting out of Canada because of the oppressive government. So this is all new stuff. So what sort of people are, you know, wanting out in terms of, you know, where they are in the tax bracket? Well, you know, that's a separate issue. I mean, that actually could be anybody. Um, the, you know, it's not the, Canada is a good country to preserve wealth in once you've got it. Right. So I think that it could be there are some people who actually view it as a bit of a wealth haven. And, and I would agree with that, uh, just so long as you want to live forever. All right. Because, you know, it's it's, it's hard to transfer this stuff around. Um, it's also hard to sever tax residency in Canada. The problem with Canada is that the tax system is such that it's, it's difficult to accumulate wealth. So. What I have seen quite a bit of are sort of mid-career people, you know, maybe in their 40s, uh, who are in the process of building lucrative businesses. And, uh, you know, basically what they're doing is they're severing tax residency with Canada, paying a deemed capital gains tax on their assets to leave, just sort of seeing it as a, as a better long-term investment. Uh, mm -hmm. than staying in Canada. And, and you know, this is, I, I think, not a good thing for the country. Um, you know, so out of one side of the mouth, you know, they're imposing these, you know, they have these, you know, rather brutal tax regime. And on the other side, you know, they're saying, well, by God, you know, we've got to increase immigration, you know, we've got to get people coming here. So Canada has, like many Western countries, right, uh, has a uh, a problem of demographics, right? There aren't enough younger people. Now, you know, that didn't mm. bother me particularly until, you know, I reached retirement age and then I started looking, well, maybe it's true. Maybe there aren't enough people to support me if I were to stop working, right? And, uh, you know, so th this is the dilemma, right? The tax system is forcing a lot of, uh, you know, productive people out and at the same time trying to get other people in. Be much better, I think, to have a tax system that didn't encourage people to leave and get people in. Well, that's true. It's every country, I think, at the moment is trying to claim back tax or, you know, think about the amount of money that they've spent out during the pandemic as well. So that doesn't help, does it, really? Well, that, that's a factor. Uh, I mean, a number of ways. I mean, the obvious is the amount of money they printed, uh, you know, to dole out to people. And I don't mean the word dole in a pejorative sense. Uh, you know, the, the, you know there, there's certainly that um, out of their minds. I, I think that they, I think they have trouble thinking ahead, you know, about some of the longer term consequences of this stuff. And one of the problems with democracies is that um, 
you know, I was a Winston Churchill who said democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other forms of government. I'm not so sure that's actually true anymore because that sort of confuses democracy, you know, the process of deciding who the government is with, you know, what the government does, what kind of governments we have, right? Yeah. The argument that, well, we have a democracy in Canada, in a sense that people vote, but I'm look at what's going on here right now. Um, yeah, not good. Anyway, for you, how did this all start? I mean, you didn't, you know, just come out of law school, did you? And um, basically started being an expat lawyer. How did it all begin for you? Oh, um, well, it began for me when, you know, I've been a lawyer for, I don't know, oh, at least over 40 years for sure. Uh, but most of that time I was doing other kinds of things. You know, I never really was interested in practicing law. I actually don't like being a lawyer, to be honest, okay, um, particularly. Uh, I was doing, you know, a bunch of other things, but I had a, um, an interest in, in both citizenship and taxation. After I, uh, I went to law school originally in Canada. Um, I mean, I've lived pretty much my whole life in Canada. And after that, there was this opportunity in the U.S. Uh, where I could get basically two years of advanced standing out of three for law school. So all I had to do at the time was go to law school for one year in the U.S. I'd get a U.S. law degree as well. And I thought that, you know, why not? You know, that was something to do. But I was very limited in the courses that were available to me because I also had the problem trying to simultaneously make a living. Okay, I mean, I didn't have the luxury of, you know, just, well, I think I'll do this for a year. You know, somebody's going to pay for it or something. So I was busy and limiting the courses that I took. And... One of the required courses was was uh, U.S. tax, and um, so you know I was forced into the course, but it was an incredibly well taught and interesting course. Uh, you know, the guy who taught it was actually one of the best teachers I think I've ever had. Uh, and by Do the you way, remember his name? His name was uh, Nick Kaiser. Right. Tired now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, actually, probably been retired for a long time, but you know, he was a, a great, great, really great teacher. And um, so I did very, you know, I did, I got to understand it really well. Um, and I was always like to be honest here. I mean, with all these degrees that I have, uh, like I've always been a lousy student. Okay, I mean, you know, my I would my goal was sort of like you know when I thought about wanting to go to law school. Most people think about, oh, my God, I've got to get the best grades I have, and this, that. I have to get the best. Deal. You know, my view is decidedly different. What do you need to get in the law school? Let's say it's three out of four. All right, I want exactly three. I don't want to get even one point above, you know, the three that's required to get in. So that was my, my general attitude. So the only way I really survived all these years of school was I would just follow the teachers that I liked. You know, I like the teacher. I take any course that they taught. Okay, and I'll, I'll tell you a story about another one in a second. So I kept taking these tax courses. So I ended up, you know, with really a rather first-rate and comprehensive education in tax, and more importantly, how to uh, read it, research it, apply it, you know, this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So fast forward, I don't know, 30-some years at least. And in Canada, what was happening was that um, during the Obama years, uh, the U.S. Treasury got very, very aggressive going after Americans abroad. Mm. And leaving aside that particular issue, most of this was handled by uh, law and accounting firms that, in my view, were misreading the citizenship laws, right? So what they were doing was trying to apply these laws brutally retroactively to the point where, you know, people who lost their U.S. citizenship under the immigration laws uh, you know, in say the 70s or something. And they were actually being told they were still U.S. tax citizens and they should pay penalties. And I mean, you know, I've heard of people who paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, after losing their U.S. citizenship on the advice of, of some of the stuff. So, you know, I mean, I, I got interested in it. And it was also uh, at a time in my life where I was sort of looking for something else to do. I mean, I was just, you know, kind of bored. Uh, so I you know, set out on this and uh, relearned a lot of stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm one of the very few people, I think, who integrates both citizenship and tax, you know, fluently. Mm. 
Well, that's basically it. But I still don't like being a lawyer. Why not? Because, I mean, you're very dramatically... You know, every time you... Right. Somebody, you have to keep a record. You know, who are they? What you, you know, I mean, just I, I just don't like that aspect of it at all. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, that, that's just sort of how I see it. I, I mean, I, it's, it's been very, doing this has been very, very interesting. And I never really, uh, I mean, I never would have imagined, you know, in law school well back in the last century no. that, you know, that I would have been doing this kind of work. In fact, even 15 years ago, I wouldn't have imagined that I would, you know, you know, be an expatriation lawyer, and you know, I think one of the more visible ones around. Um, you know, so it's it's funny, you know, the course that life takes. Okay, but while we're talking about great teachers, okay, uh, I want to get a shout out for another one. Uh, so I, I will credit. I want to give Professor Kaiser one hundred percent credit for getting me interested in tax. And getting, you know, and teaching me, you know, how to research and do this stuff because mm. it was a skill that was pretty easy to take off the shelf. All right, you know, years later. But uh, the most influential teacher that I ever had in my life, and I mention this only because, you know, again, I really never liked school. Very, it was a struggle for me. I mean, even you know, in grade school, sitting there was just. It, I mean, all I did was just waiting for recess. You know, that was it, right? <laughs> I think you know you and every child though I mean that's that's what what life is all about when you're young isn't it really yeah, well could be could be but I, you know I, I think I was maybe less interested in a lot a lot of people but anyway so I was I don't know I was 17 or maybe I was 18 and I started at the University of Toronto and I had to pick some courses and so I picked this course called philosophy 100 something called logic knowledge and reality so this guy walks in um you know and, so, and the first half was was logic he starts uh, you know this class and it was you know it was really a uh, you know i think a pivotal uh, point in my life it was an incredible course but it you know it introduced me more to the you know sort of the science of of how to think clearly and stuff like that it was really yeah, incredible thing. and you know you would see a course like that as nothing but a bunch of theoretical junk, but it actually turned out to be probably the most practical course I've ever had in my life. Well, it's critical uh, thinking, isn't it? It's, you know, yeah. it's that type of thing that you definitely need to have a clear head as well. And, a, you know, a way, a method of thinking, I suppose, with being a taxation lawyer, because, you know. Uh, well, I don't even think of it so much in terms of that, but maybe, I don't see myself as a tax person, by the way. Okay, that's, you know, I just see myself as somebody who solves problems for Americans broad that include tax. I mean, there's all kinds of people who know more, you know, sort of tax overall, you know, on the broad, because I mean, there's so many mm -hmm. different tax. I, I, don't, I don't really identify as a tax person, you know, even, even though I, I do a lot of that. But you stuff. definitely have got your own little mission bus there, haven't you? I mean, you know, in terms totally, of... Totally, totally. You know, I basically... You know, I'm committed to getting these rules of citizenship taxation changed. And you know, I spent a lot of years doing that. And there are worse things you can do with your life. Well, it's a uh, human rights issue, though, isn't it? Let's face it. It's really is. Oh, totally. Right. Absolutely. I mean, what this is really about, I mean, to call it citizenship taxation is to make it sound like there's some patriotic justification to this. What it really is is imposing U.S. worldwide taxation reporting and penalties on people who don't live in the United States are tax residents of other countries and make their income in other countries. That's what it's really about. It's, it's honestly, it's a form of violence, okay, against those people. Yeah. And against uh, the countries where they reside because these rules operate to simply siphon capital, you know, out of the country. So I don't, I don't see any other real way to describe it, but that is, of course, not how it's described. No, I mean, it. it's not. But, I mean, the thing is, it, it really is, as we've said, a human rights issue because, you know, people come to you and, it, it, you know, they're, they're desperate, aren't they? They're, they're desperate. They're at their wits' end. Um, they are desperate. How... They're at their wits' end, and there are only varying degrees of that. And many of them have been frozen, you know, really for years. And... 
you know, what to do with this kind of problem. And they need to, uh, you know, they, they, they need two things. Well, they need, I guess, three things. Okay. The first is they need to understand that it is possible to get to the other side. Okay. Number one, that this is possible. Two, they need to be informed or to understand in a general sense what the roadmap is for doing that, right? Yeah. And third, they need to be motivated or give themselves the, you know, the permission to do it. So, you know, it's a combination of those things. So, you know, you're dealing with a person who's suffering from U.S. place of birth anxiety or disability, maybe we put it that way. Yeah, uh, it's not really about the solution so much as it is about trying to understand what is required for that person to move on to a new uh, healthy life where they don't have to think about this anymore. And that can mean different things for different people. Yeah, of course, because there's very different scenarios. I mean, when I first came across you and came across the whole FATCA thing, you know, the Foreign Account Taxation Compliance Act, there you go. Um, it, it, it was really quite shocking to think that, you know, people that were only born in America and then travelled abroad at a very young age with their parents, um, you know, can be asked to pay tax to, you know, the United States, which is, in my eyes, it just seems really wrong. They've never made any money in America. It's completely wrong. And, uh, you know, so, but the thing is this, okay. I mean, I have no doubt that at the end of the day, this stuff will change because all of these, you know, horrible injustices do change. And it is a horrible injustice because of the effect that it has on these people. Mm. But it's only going to change when the individual is impacted by it, you know, whether they're uh, people who left the United States as adults, whether they're these so-called accidentals and never lived there, when they actually are willing to unite to get this change, they're not willing to do it at the moment. Yeah, that's that's the tragedy. No, well, I mean, it, it's... They're different, but they're not willing to stand up to any of this at all. No, well, I think it's just a big calling, isn't it? Really, it is a big calling. And then, you know, why you, this is why you've got, you're on this mission that you're on, really. I mean, you know, I, I, I know that you've tried to lobby the, the Senate as well and do all sorts of other things with your group, say it, um, to, you know, try and drive the situation forward. And one day, surely it's got to change. Of course, it's going to change. I mean, I have no doubt about it. The only what you're betting on is not if, but when. And I do not think it's going to change quickly enough for a lot of the people who really, really, uh, you know, are suffering. Uh, you know, they 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 really need to renounce U.S. citizenship. Uh, you know, they need to invest the money that's required to do this because for them. This is just not going to be reversible in the short, you know, in the, in the really short enough run for them. And no. so, you know, it's it's horribly unjust. It's very unfair. But the reality is that by paying some money, they can get their lives back, many of them. And that's what I think they should do. Uh, because otherwise, they're essentially selling the rest of their lives, you know, for the equivalent of you know, the renunciation fee and in some cases some tax work. And I think that's a bad idea. No, I, I agree with you. So so what is it that makes you tick, John? What is it that makes you go up in the morning and think I've got another fight, another day for, you know, these these people that no, um, I, you know, I, I, it's, I mean I'm I'm really busy, you know, with a lot of you know with a lot of different things. So I don't know. I mean I just I mean I find a lot of these things interesting. Um, I mean, I sort of see this as, uh, you know, a combination of advocacy, uh, teaching, you know, because people need, you know, you have to be able to explain this stuff, right? 
uh, and enough legal work to finance the advocacy and the teaching. I mean, you know, if I'm sitting there doing advocacy and teaching, you know, that's that's the majority of the time, right? And uh, you know, fortunately, I have to survive like everybody else. So, you know, I mean, all the all the so-called law thing, right? Uh, for me, it's just a way to finance the other things. Yeah, no, I mean, but you changes. I am out of here. Okay. I am out of here. Your work is done. You can go and relax on a beach. Oh, no, I'll just do something else. I mean, I have no interest in being a lawyer, that's for sure. Really? That, that's, that's quite interesting, though, because, you know, you, you're like a walking book about, you know, taxation law, <laughs> really, aren't you? Um, and, well, I don't you know, think that's a good thing, actually. I mean, you know, I find it clutters your mind. I mean, I think it's incredibly stupid, actually. <laughs> I mean, I was having dinner with a, a friend of mine about a year ago who's, you know, what I would call a super international tax CPA, you know, one of these people, you know, sort of the elites of this and, you know, probably charged accordingly. But, you know, he said something interesting to me about all the people he know. He said, you know, when I think about all these incredibly, incredibly bright people who work in the area of international tax, I often think, my God, what they could have achieved with their lives if they'd done something else. And and I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, at the end of the day, this is just, I mean, it's technically complicated. On a certain level, it's interesting. It's horribly unjust. I mean, we've never even talked about the injustice of the pillar one and pillar two and how, you know, the Western democracies inflicted these unfair tax treaties on the developing world. You want to know why they're poor? Because in large part, because of the tax treaties. But that's another, you know, that's that's another discussion. But you know, his point was an interesting one, right? You know, that if that productive brain power in that profession were actually directed to something of public value, imagine how much could be accomplished. It's like you take some of your brightest minds and you keep them, you know, busy with compliance and forms. Because at the end of the day, you know, it's I live in Toronto. I may have said this to you once before, but there's this corner, there's Bay and King, which is the sort of office tower thing. You know, there's four sky, skyscrapers. You look up, you know, they're, I don't know, 50 to 80 stories or something. I don't know what they are. But you look up and you say, what goes on in those buildings? And the answer is, they fill out forms. That's it. Okay. You know, and all they do, I mean, in most offices as well, they do fill out forms. Forms, so. forms, forms. I mean, to be sure, some are incredibly complex, some are less mm. complex. But at the end of the day, it's about filling out forms. So I think that, that people's objective should be they have what I would call a form free life. Okay. A remember form the free Bond? life. Oh, remember, God. remember the movie Born Free? Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, I do remember Born Free. It's an amazing film. Yeah. Born Free. Change the lyrics to Form Free. Okay. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I mean that should be that should be the yeah. Form Free. Oh, I can see it now. It'd be great. I want to see if I can find it. Hold on. <laughs> it actually appeared once on a blog post. Let me just see if I can find it. It's so amazing. I think it's very creative. And here is the classic by Andy Williams, Born Free. Divide you, you're free. 
okay, so you've got all this knowledge, but really you are a very creative person, which is why you're kind of driving forward this campaign against citizenship taxation, aren't you? A creative? Is that the word? No, you, you are creative. I think creative is, is yeah, visionary. I think you're also visionary, really. Well, I don't know that I'm a visionary. I think I'm an optimist, okay? But, you know, the biggest struggle with this, honestly, has nothing to do with the governments at all. It has to do with trying to deal with the negativity that you're constantly forced to listen to from people who, you know, wish that this could be changed but want to spend their time. This will never change. You know, I mean, please, please. If you're going to be like that, get out of here, okay? Don't interfere with a headspace. No. You, you know, need collective yeah. thought in order to make something change, don't you? It just Sorry? takes, you need collective thought, it's true. And it takes a conversation just between two people to start an idea. Well, you need, you need to believe that what you're doing is possible, okay? Yeah. That's yeah. number one. If you decide yeah. that it is not possible, you know, you've already created a situation where it's not going to be possible, mm -hmm. right? You know, almost every, all injustices in the world eventually get righted. It's, it's a question of how long it takes. And the people who spend their time saying, oh, you're wasting your time. Okay, uh, this will never change. I mean, are, in my judgment, a much bigger part of the problem here. I mean, if you could get 6 million Americans abroad together to demand change, I think you could get it, all right? But you know, if you got like 25 people in the world, you know, actively making noise about this, it's pretty difficult to be heard, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely, no, I agree with you, definitely, it is. You know, you need to just keep driving that point forward. And, but I mean, you've met a lot of, like-minded people haven't you so i mean there's there's groups i mean how did a you lot. set up how many do you think a lot is <laughs> what <laughs> a lot how many do you think is a lot oh, it, it strikes me i mean you know you do podcasts with other people um and always the subject is about you know citizenship taxation um and you know how um there is a way forward or, you know, all the ins and outs of it. So, I mean, it, it strikes me that you've met a lot of people on your journey. But... A lot, but a very, very small percentage of those effects. Actually, you gave me a great idea how to theme the podcast. Why don't we call it Citizenship Taxation Can Steal From You a Million Ways, and we're going to have a podcast on every one of them starting now. <laughs> I think we'd die before we got, got to the end of that, don't you? Well, I think that shows you, you know, the extent of the absurdity. I mean, you know what? Let me, let me just add this, okay? The way to look at it is if you have citizenship taxation, any change in U.S. tax policy is going to have some kind of unforeseen negative effect on the people subject to it. And whoever the government is, whether it's Republicans, Democrats, or both, there will be tax changes. So as long as there's citizenship taxation, there's going to be trouble. So the issue on this is not are the Democrats worse than the Republicans or vice versa. The issue is, in terms of voting and organization, who are the people or the parties who are most likely to make an effort to get this stuff changed? That's, I think, you know, the question that you need to ask here. Definitely. Yeah, I can see that. I can see exactly what you mean. Um, I mean, as said to you before, you I know that you have been lobbying, but I mean, have you got some sort of strategy after you've just said that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, well, in terms of what I think should happen, yeah. you know, to do what I think the strategy should be, I mean, I'm sure there'll be plenty of disagreement because it's very hard for Americans to be rational, you know, when it comes to politics. There's something very tribal about it. You're a Democrat, you're a Republican, and your sole mission in life is to kill the other party or elect yours, regardless of, you know, regardless of what's going on. But the way I see the situation for Americans abroad is this, that 
the basically overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly Americans abroad tend to either support the Democrats or vote Democrat. Okay, I don't think Republicans have a huge presence outside the United States. So I think the strategy is simply this, because Democratic Party through their get out of the vote campaign, which they call vote from abroad, is literally scouring the earth. It is unbelievable, all these chapters of Democrats abroad daily, 24-7. It's like this marketing frenzy designed to get Americans abroad to vote. So I think that should be leveraged. In other words, let them do the awareness thing and build the campaign on that which should be, you know, because the Democrats were, you know, they did an act back and they have, I think, been more problematic to not vote for the Democrats, all right, until there's change here. In other words, let mm -hmm. them bring the awareness, the result, not vote for the Democrats. Now, that does not mean for anybody listening that you vote Republican. You can do what you want. It means that you don't vote for the Democrats because, you know, they're claiming in the last presidential election that the you know, what they call the overseas vote, put them over the top in both Georgia and Arizona. Now, I have no idea whether that's true, obviously. But the point is they're saying it. And, you know, you say something enough times, maybe somebody will start to believe it. They certainly yeah. are, are lobbying hard enough for the votes of Americans abroad, that is, the Democrats are, so that, you know, it seems reasonable to me that they think they matter or that they could matter. It is fairly clear. Well, let me just tell you, okay, I live in, as you know, I live in Toronto. And in the 2020 presidential election, I am not kidding, okay? You, if you walked up one of the main streets in Toronto on telephone poles, you know, where there, you know, where you, people sometimes put up posters, mm -hmm. you would see posters advertising was either vote for abroad or vote for the Democrats. I mean, it's the same organization, one of the two, right? I mean, there were bus, they took out ads and put them on the sides of buses in Windsor, Ontario, which is across the river from Detroit, US. So, I mean, they come into other countries and yeah. they advertise. I mean, my God, the street over from me, I was horrified driving by one morning to see this big lawn sign on private property getting people to vote for the Democrats. Now, <laughs> this is Canada, okay? So surely Canadians can't vote for. Well, they can't vote, okay. Uh, but there's, you know, there's enough people with dual citizenship. You know, or in a city like Toronto, there's, you know, uh, apparently, uh, you know, a very large number of people who are American citizens. Uh, whether they see themselves that way or not is irrelevant because the focus of the get out of the vote campaign is not whether you see yourself as an American but whether you're eligible to vote, meaning, okay, were you born in the United States or were you born to a U.S. citizen parent, in which case, by God, go get a ballot and vote. I mean, this is, I think this is real. I don't, I think they should be kicked out of the country, okay? I think this is completely inappropriate to be moving into other countries and running their marketing campaigns in U.S. I really do. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. It's it's not right, is it really? No, no, it's obscene. It, it's absolutely obscene. Mm. You know, particularly when a lot of these tax policies of the Democrats, you know, the exit tax, you know, and, and other things, FATCA, right? All these things came from the Democrats and had the effect of accelerating or increasing the amount of US taxation imposed on Canadian citizens living in Canada who just happen to have some kind of a U.S. connection. I mean, honestly, I mean, if I were part of the government, I would take steps to get them removed from the country. I think this is gross. Yeah. It shouldn't be allowed, should it, really? No. I mean, can you imagine if, uh, you know, if this were reversed uh, and you had, you know, a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, Russians coming into the United States to try to get, I don't know, you know, whether Russian expats can vote or not. But I mean, you know, I'm sure that that would catch the attention of people, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just a bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it would. But I mean, what's the difference? I mean, you know, I'm serious. Like, you know, is, is it the U.S. is somehow a country that's friendly to Canada? I mean, I don't think that's the point. You know, the point is that this is, you know, this is a political issue, number one. Number two, uh, 
you know, it's targeting people who are largely Canadian citizens who have some kind of, you know, residual kind of US citizenship. Number three, the policies of the party they're trying to get you to vote for have actually accelerated the imposition of direct US taxation on Canadian residents. I mean, you know, this should not be going off. Anything they need to be thrown out of the country. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it is, it's a ludicrous situation. You know, you couldn't make it up, could you, really? It, it sounds like a conversation. Make any of stuff up. You couldn't make any of it up. It, it, it's, it's so incredible. And this is part of the problem, is that you can't really get people to believe what's going on. Uh, and, and most people in the United States, the reason why it's hard to have a conversation is because they don't believe it either. You know, right. they think you're making it up or they don't understand the difference between a citizen and a resident. You know, or they, they somehow have, uh, you know, completely absorbed into their DNA the sort of notion that, well, you know, the United States, was Margaret Thatcher who said, referred to the United States as that great citadel of freedom and justice. Um, yeah. You know, you know, and this is what they believe. But I mean, when you look at what's really going on, these extraterritorial tax policies are, are actually part of a 24-7 war using the financial system, you know, again against other countries. No, I see exactly see what you mean. So I mean that really effectively in you know layman's terms, <laughs> they're pinching their dough. <laughs> right. As we would say in the, the UK, they're pinching their dough. Yeah, it, that's, um, yeah, not funny, really, isn't it? They're stealing their money. Is that, that better? It, absolutely. I mean, you know, three or four examples. You know, they, uh, well, you know, I mean, this is pretty technical stuff, right? But, you know, the, the, the PFIC rules, you know, uh, you know, U.S. citizen, Canadian citizen with U.S. citizenship living in Canada gets special punitive taxation if he buys he or she buys Canadian mutual funds. Uh, the Obamacare net investment income tax is deliberately written in such a way that uh, you know if you pay tax on the same money in Canada, you, you're deprived of using Canadian tax to foreign tax credit for that. So it's like a 3.8 percent just sucking off the top, you know. Yeah. on investment income and by the way they're you know they're, they're trying to increase that so there's all kinds of ways that you know the u.s is using this system to basically siphon a productive capital out of other countries and interfere with their own internal tax policies for example you know i believe in the uk you also have a rule that if you sell your principal residence it's exempt from capital gains tax well you know, that's true. Yeah, the policy reason for that, okay, namely that you ought to be able to sell your house and move, you know, to a comparable yes. house or, you know, if you, you have to move somewhere, right? But if you're a U.S. citizen, you run into trouble with that. So the truth of the matter is, and I see more and more of this, that U.S. citizens who live in other countries are like they're permanently downwardly mobile people, you know? And many of them absolutely give up on financial plans. Right. They say, well, I can't do this. I'm an American. I can't do that. I'm an American. You know, I can't sell my house. I'm an American. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Why should American citizenship be a disability? But this is what the United States has done with these rules. They have converted American citizenship into a disability. I mean, yeah. look at the number of people who are willing to pay tons of money to get rid of it. And I agree with them. The money they pay, whether it's the renunciation fee, whether it's compliance or whatever, whether it's the exit tax, is probably the single best financial investment they will ever make in their lifetimes. Yeah, so by the sounds of things, it is, isn't it? You know, because they need to remove themselves if they've got that amount of tax to pay to the US government if they're not living not in the country. It's, it's the US taxation of things that would be, that are designed to be tax free and retirement planning purposes in other countries, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, let me give you a really, really simple example. Um, well, uh, I think this is the same as an ISA, actually, in the UK. But, but okay, so uh, the US has a Roth IRA, all right? So, you know, you put after-tax money into Roth IRA, it grows tax-free. Yeah. Canada has an equivalent, 
which is called a TFSA tax-free savings account. But because that's not recognized under the Internal Revenue Code, if you're a U.S. citizen, if you have a TFSA, the income in it will be taxed. So the point is that these things are, you know, tax systems are used to facilitate retirement planning as well as collect tax. So the Canadian TFSA, if you're a U.S. citizen, you cannot, you're deprived of one of the few tax benefits in Canada that people use for financial planning, okay? Right. And the same thing would be true. I think this is how the ISA works in the UK. It's, it's, it's yeah. sort of a, yeah, you know, a tax-free, you know, it's the same sort of problem. Yeah. And so it's not, the issue is less uh, the amount of US tax that is paid. The issue is more the loss of opportunity for rational financial planning. Now, on that note, there's one other country in the world, the great nation of Eritrea, that has you know, citizenship-based taxation. And they, of course, were emulating the IRS. Mm. But their system doesn't work the way the US one does. Theirs is just, you, know, you just pay like a 2% excise tax on your income. That might be tolerable because that would be just a tax payment and it would still allow you the full range of financial planning and retirement investing opportunities. Yeah, that would be manageable, wouldn't it? And you could plan that. Yeah. Exactly. So US policymakers, at a very minimum, instead of Eritrea emulating the US, it takes the US system is so complicated, I'm sure they really didn't understand it. Okay. They just saw yeah. citizens pay tax, citizens pay tax. But if the US were to use the Eritrean system, you know, just impose some small excise tax, that would be far better. It would be far better for Americans, you know, if they were to do anything for Americans abroad, because then they wouldn't be deprived of being able to participate in normal financial retirement vehicles. Yeah, as you said, it, it really is a problem. So, I mean, you know, what I mean, do you do you think about this stuff all the time, John? No, I think about it when I talk to you and you ask me. <laughs> Well, I do, but you know, what, what also do you do to just sort of relax and unplug and just say, right, I mean, you like to read books, don't you? I do like to read books. I don't know. I, uh, I cycle. Do you? Um, yeah, I love cycling. Um, I walk in the Toronto ravines. Uh, I don't know. I mean, until just the last years i've always been sort of heavily involved in one sport or another and i was tennis skiing you know well, i mean i do i you'd be surprised how many things i can do yeah no well that's good i i like to think that you know you do unplug from because as i said it, it's quite a large mission that you're on there aren't you well, now nobody ever does you know discussions with me like this about my you know walking in the toronto ravines or something right you know or you know where was my last you know so, cycling week or something. I've never, I've never had that kind of discussion with anybody. Well, there you go then. I'm just going to change it up a little bit as well, because I, it's, so it's we good go, to we know. On, on, any, on any one of these topics, we can do, oh, you know, we can do uh, great books. We can do one on the latest James Bond movie that I haven't seen yet. I'm actually going to do a podcast on, on Bond films, you know, through the years. Oh, that uh, that was that would be amazing. In fact, um, they've actually killed James Bond off, haven't they? Well, I don't. You know, it seems to me there's the possibility he can come back, right? Um, no, I, it's going to be 007. Yeah, I think it's going to be 007 because they've actually killed him off. So, honestly, does it upset you the idea of James Bond being killed off? Yes. Yes, I grew up with James Bond <laughs> and he was, you know, like a screen icon, not just for, <laughs> for men, I think women as well. It was like, you know, this, this hero that was all smooth and debonair and, yeah, just this kind of real action guy who... <laughs> so who is your favorite James Bond? I mean, this is always an important question to ask people because Well, do you know what, actually? If you are going to do a podcast on James Bond, then maybe I should be on your podcast. So I, I shall tell you why. 
my house in London, um, Roger Moore used to live next door with Dorothy Squires. Really? Yeah. So there you go. I don't remember them at all because I was you know, knee high to a grasshopper. I was tiny. Um, so I don't at all. And my family are from Scotland. So actually, Sean Connery went to school with my aunt in Linlithgow in Scotland. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So <laughs> I've I've got the Bond connection, it's true. But yeah, so um, my favourite James Bond, I would probably have to say, um, oh, there's a couple. I, I recently have liked Daniel Craig. How recently? Yeah, no, real recently, because I've seen the latest Bond. Well, it came out last year, didn't it? So... Um, no Time to Die. That that was a brilliant movie. In my eyes, not everybody liked it, but yeah. I, it was a good movie. Definitely. Really enjoyed it. Um, and it was the type of movie you were sat on the edge of your seat all the time because it was really action-packed as well. Well, that's good. That was right. The whole story of my life in terms of when James Bond movies came out. You should, you should seriously, you should do it if that, if that is what interests you. But right now, you are also, aren't you? You're, um, you? you're doing a whole new set of podcasts on Charles Adams, who's a very interesting man, isn't he? Totally interesting. Yeah, this, this tax historian. Yeah, so these are based on, there's this amazing book. Um, I wonder how when the Bible was originally published, if it ever was sort of published at one time. But let's imagine it were originally published. It probably would have been a small, you know, a small print run. I mean, mm. many of these books, you know, they grow. So this this book, Charles Adams for Good and Evil, it's about the relationship between taxes and the rise and fall of civilization, the kinds of taxes. And he wrote this book, I think, over a twenty year period. Um, I think it came out in the early nineties. I saw an interview with him. Apparently, there were only like seventeen hundred copies of this book printed, if you can imagine. But it's actually. Uh, you know, one of the most amazing books, uh, I mean, if there is such a thing as, you know, I mean, it's really, you know, a study of history, right, through the lens of text, an amazing book. So, guy I know, a friend of mine um, in Dubai, his name is uh, Jimmy Sexton, he also likes the book a lot. So, in the book, there are 27 sort of historical lessons. Yeah. Uh, and we are doing a series of podcasts, uh, one lesson at a time sort of, you know, modernizing them. And it's amazing how, how totally right on this guy was, how, how prescient he was in his view of, uh, you know, where governments would go in, certain, in terms of certain tax and reporting uh, things. I mean, Lesson 11 that talks about bank secrecy, I mean, he completely anticipated FATCA, and he completely anticipated what the government of Canada did this week, back two days ago, was basically gave the Canadian banks the authority to essentially shut down anybody's account who they don't like, uh, you know, who are doing something sort of subversive. I mean, this is amazing stuff. And all of these things were, you know, foreseen by this guy, at least in principle. So we've been working on a series of podcasts, uh, you know, to modernize this stuff and discuss it. And so I sort of informally, I think of it as my informal creation of the Charles Adams Society. And you know, gradually we'll find more people who are interested in this. Uh, you know, they will be invited only by invitation because, you know, I think this stuff can be discussed only by, you know, a rather elite group of people. I mean, there aren't that many people, or maybe not elite, but I, so I, I, won't, ex I won't expect an invitation in the post then. Hey. <laughs> I don't an invitation, absolutely. I mean, anybody who wants an invitation can get an invitation, I guess. Anybody who wants one can get one. But anybody who doesn't ask for one who gets one has to be extraordinarily special. But you qualify on both counts, so you can have an invitation. You're, I, in fact, I will formally proclaim you as a fellow of the Charles Adams Society right now. Brilliant. Thank you. So, yeah, this is all happening live, folks, on tea, the Tea Time Sofa. <laughs> well, it's amazing how much can change in one, how, how people's lives can change in one conversation, isn't it? 
It's true. It's true. I mean, you know, that that's, uh, well, I mean, you know me, that's why I do what I do. Because, yeah. you know, when you strike up a conversation, you've got the power to change the world. So it's as simple as that, isn't it? Well, and or, you know, if you listen, uh, more talkers than listeners. Listening is the key skill here. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you don't listen, you, you miss something. You do, definitely. Anyway, John, it has been lovely to have you on the Tea Time sofa today. It really has. We've talked about tax as a guest that we were going to. <laughs> we can't sort of get around that subject, can we? <laughs> oh, I'm that's all anybody talks about. Remember, there's two kinds of people in the world, according to the media, right? Those who are rich and are abusing the tax system and those who are poor and abused by it. So, yeah. If you look at the political situation in the U.S., this whole build back, it's all about tax. That's all it's about. Look forward to chatting with my next guest on the Tea Time Sofa this time next Saturday. In the meantime, if you would love to get in touch about having a chat with me, you can reach me on teatime at forthenow.co.uk. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram on Tea Time with AM. Bye for now.